Good morning. Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thank you all for being here so early in the morning. I'd like to start with a, a personal story. Uh, last year, about this time, I was at the White House Summit on Global Development. It was at the Ronald Reagan Building downstairs. I know many of you in this room were probably also there. I sort of muscled my way up to find a good seat and got my cell phone ready for when President Obama came onto the stage. And when he declared that moments ago, before that moment, um, he had just signed the Global Food Security Act, I cried. Um, I'm not an overly, I get emotional about it now, I'm not an overly emotional person, so it takes a lot for a tear to run down my cheek. But I cried because it was very personal and it was very powerful. It was personal because I had the fortune of working on Feed the Future in its early days. And since then, which is not what I anticipated, I've worked on global development, um, I mean, agricultural development and global food security ever since. It was also powerful because it was a real moment I felt of U.S. leadership. It was also a great reminder of the role of Congress and how Congress has that power to take what may be a development priority of one administration and take it on to the next administration. Our opening speakers know this all too well. Senators Richard Luger and Senator Bob Casey are no stranger to CSIS and certainly no stranger to each other. In fact, in 2008, CSIS put together a task force on global food security, and its co-chairs just happened to be Senators Richard Luger and Bob Casey. That task force was in response to the global food price crisis that was happening at the time, and they were charged with creating a bold plan for, at the time, the Bush administration and the upcoming presidential campaigns in Congress. And they wrote a paper, and the paper argued for a number of things, but including to modernize and double emergency assistance, to elevate rural development and agricultural productivity to be new foreign policy priorities, and to create a strategic U.S. approach to global food security that interlinks approaches to relief, development, energy, and trade. The second phase of that task force was producing this paper. Again, this was a while ago. This was April of 2010. And the paper called Cultivating Global Food Security, it's on our website. I encourage you to look at it because so many points of it are still relevant today. But what I think is interesting is that the call that they asked for was really heeded by our administration, and I certainly hope that it continues under the current administration. It's such an honor to introduce and really share this podium um, with Senators Luger and Casey. Um, Senator Luger, I admire you greatly. You should probably know that. Um, Having, being around someone who's such a big, powerful voice in our space um, reminds me of how lucky I am to be in this job. Uh, Senator Luger, I admire you because you've made a real difference in the world, um, from his work on nuclear nonproliferation, but also his continued work on aid effectiveness, on bipartisan support, and thankfully through the Luger Center, he also continues to work on global food security. You know, even though your name may not have been as a co-sponsor on the Global Food Security Act, we all know, for those of us that's been working in this space, 
that your vision, your leadership, and your efforts are all over the legislation. So we are very grateful that you're here today to help us reflect and look back on the evolution of how far we've come over the past decade. Senator Luger. Thank you for your very kind introduction, Kimberly, and especially for the great work that you do here at CIS on the Global Food Security Project. It's a pleasure and a really an honor to be again with my good friend, Senator Bob Casey. I really have looked forward to this opportunity as we celebrate the one-year anniversary of the enactment of the Bipartisan Global Food Security Act. Before taking stock of where the program stands today or discussing its reauthorization, some reflection on the history of the law, its purpose and relevance might be useful. As many of you know, my own interest in food security began as a boy on a 604-acre farm in Indiana which uh, my dad had purchased in the 1930s, and after his death in 1950, I still managed for the family. Each year, we plant roughly 200 acres of corn and 200 acres of soybeans to go with our acreage planted in black walnut and other good trees. Our chances of a bumper crop each year are excellent, given the astounding array of technologies that our farm and most of American agriculture use to maximize yield and to protect the environment. The Luger Farm is benefiting from genetically modified seed, advancements in soil analysis, GPS mapping of the land, sophisticated weather forecasting, and numerous other technologies. Our present-day yield is roughly four times what it was when I was a boy. I relate this personal experience to underscore that agricultural science is capable of delivering miraculous results. Having witnessed such amazing productivity growth in the span of my lifetime on my own farm, I've always believed that we can develop the technology necessary to grow, store, distribute, and market safe, affordable food. Even as the number of people on this earth, and they are going to, to grow to 9.7 billion persons by 2050 as predicted, we'll, we'll need that food supply and the growth that we can supply. It's with this personal lens, together with my tenure in the United States Senate on both the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the Agriculture Committees, that I frequently have asserted the United States should maintain a unique leadership role in global food security. Throughout our history as a nation, we have developed fertile cropland, improved efficiencies through technology, and benefited from the Green Revolution with enormous increases in crop yield. We have developed efficient systems 
for distribution of agricultural products for trade and humanitarian purposes. Our agricultural researchers at our land-grant universities are the best in the world. They continually improve seed production through advanced biotechnology and address environmental challenges. We know this sector and we can perform extremely well with it. Food can be the basis on which other development sectors are built. I believe all of these factors translate into an American comparative advantage in global agricultural development that we should be leveraging to the maximum effect. That is why when food price spikes in 2007 and 2008 set off a series of events that pushed an additional 200 million people into chronic hunger, bringing the total number to nearly one billion persons on this earth, I instructed my staff on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to study and to report on the complexities of this situation and to recommend solutions. Around the same time, Senator Bob Casey and I had the privilege of co-chairing a CSIS task force on the same question. And soon after, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs weighed in with their own report. The Foreign Relations Committee report drove the drafting of the first iteration of the Global Food Security Act in 2008. And I was honored that Senator Casey joined me as an original sponsor. Although the legislation was not enacted in that Congress, the Obama administration had also begun to focus on the chronic hunger and resulting political instability that was taking place across the globe. The administration created the Feed the Future initiative and several of the recommendations from our Senate Foreign Relations Committee report, the CSIS report, and the Chicago Council report were incorporated into this initiative. As the Obama administration came to an end, it was gratifying to witness the political momentum to ensure continuity of United States leadership in global food security. And so it was with Senator Casey's steady and continued leadership that we saw tremendous bipartisan support for the passage of the Global Food Security Act of 2016. Now, while we have much to celebrate on this one-year anniversary, regrettably, significant challenges face our common goal of eliminating global hunger. Conflicts in four major hotspots across the globe, in Syria, South Sudan, Yemen, and Somalia, are pushing nearly 20 million people into famine status. In recent months, we have witnessed the greatest migrations since World War II, with 65 million persons displaced. At the same time, the Trump administration has proposed a 31% reduction in the budget by the State Department and USAID. Now, research investments necessary to improve crop production, reduce the impacts of pests and disease, and address climate change are clearly under stress. And U.S. leadership in the world 
is being called into question. The Congress has committed to United States leadership in global food security. This decision is, of course, one of the moral one of moral imperative, but it's also sound national security policy. I'm reminded that hungry people are often desperate people. Stable countries in which populations are food secure become United States allies, are able to educate and train their citizens, and become participants in the global economy. On this occasion, as we celebrate the first anniversary of the signing of the Global Food Security Act, we must work together to redouble our efforts to address global hunger and its associated problems. It is vital to ensuring a safer, more stable, and prosperous world for all of us. I thank each one of you for coming to this conference. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Luger, very much. Our next opening speaker is Senator Bob Casey. Um, he spoke here just over two years ago, which was actually my first event at CSIS in this role, and it's come a long way since in terms of legislation and, and momentum and support, um, and again, bipartisan support. Um, this is one of the few topics that really can bridge um, those party lines. What I remember about um, Senator Casey and his remarks two years ago is how he's one of our leaders on the Hill that's, I don't love this phrase, but fighting the good fight. He understands the importance of jobs as much as nutrition. He understands agriculture and how that can relate to his constituents as well as making those linkages to our national security connection. And clearly, as Senator Luger has laid out, uh, we would not be here today if it wasn't for his continued leadership over the past decade to keep this momentum and keep the congressional champions that we have on this issue. Well, Kimberly, thank you so much for that introduction and for your leadership. And I want to thank the, the larger CSIS team here, your larger community, working on such a critically important issue um, across our globe. And it's interesting this morning, one of the reasons I won't be here for the panel, and I'll figure out a way to watch the, the discussion later, is I, I'm going to be uh, Susan Collins is chair of the Aging Committee. Special Committee on Aging. I'm the ranking member, so we're going to have a, a hearing this morning, um, a rare hearing in the morning. Usually we're in the afternoon. So, And interestingly, it's on um, the question of food insecurity among seniors uh, domestically. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to be back here and grateful to have a chance to uh, reflect but also uh, to look forward. I'm always uh, honored and privileged to be in the presence of Senator Dick Luger, when I uh, joined the Senate in January of 2007, I had the great uh, privilege as well to be part of the Foreign Relations Committee and got to, to know him then. Um, he could have worked with someone else if he wanted to on the Global Food Security Act. I was lucky that we 
had the chance to work together. And of course, he was uh, the leader of that effort, and I was joining him. We were in the, uh, at that point, we were in the, the uh, majority uh, with the Republican administration. So he had that interesting combination uh, at that time. But Dick, I'm so grateful for your leadership on this issue all those, all those years. And obviously, it takes a while, as you know, in the Senate to pass anything. Um, and in fact, if, if we just look at the, the eight years on this bill, that might be, that might be uh, lightning warp speed. <laughs> but I had the privilege, to, after working with Senator Luger, to, to, then to work with Senator Johans, and then ultimately Senator John Isaacson. And finally, we got, um, got the bill done. But in a very personal way, though, I miss uh, Dick Luger beyond just working with him on this issue on the Foreign Relations Committee and the Agriculture Committee. We miss his decency uh, and his determination. We also miss, of course, his intellect and his integrity and his ability to bring people together even in difficult times. So, Dick, if you could just bottle that and distribute it to uh, the hundred of us, we'd all be in better, in, in better shape. Let me start with a, a broad um, message um, in this, or an observation, I should say, that this issue we come together to talk about today, uh, I believe, is a basic justice issue uh, for people across the world, um, and that we have an obligation to, to do all we can to reduce the likelihood that, that an individual anywhere in the world suffers from hunger, malnutrition, food insecurity, however we describe it. The New Testament in the Beatitudes uh, directs us or inspires us to do uh, a number of things. One of the great lines, of course, in the Beatitudes is, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall be satisfied. And uh, I think that's a, an appropriate reference to this issue. It is a justice issue. And as Senator Luger said, even as we celebrate this anniversary, of the passage and signing of the Global Food Security Act, we should be, in addition to our uh, pride in having gotten that done, we should also be mindful that none of us can be satisfied yet. None of us can say that we've brought the full measure of justice that that uh, legislation intends to bring. We have much more work to do. And in the next couple of months, the next year or so, uh, that work may be particularly difficult. When I was last here, just two years ago, I argued that the United States was uniquely qualified to lead the international community on food security for uh, three reasons, as I outlined then. Number one, that our country's domestic agricultural expertise and technological innovation gave us that opportunity, certainly in my home state of Pennsylvania. Uh, there's plenty of that. Our robust food assistance programs uh, gave us the opportunity as well to lead this effort uh, across the globe. And number three, the strengths of our stakeholder groups, from aid organizations to faith-based organizations to U.S. government agencies. This remains true today. We do, in the United States of America, have unique capabilities and strengths, and uh, we should take full advantage of those. However, I'm concerned that leadership 
on this issue or our leadership on this issue could be at risk, and we have to make sure that we act uh, to realize that opportunity. Today, the issue of food insecurity has reached a crisis point in those countries that Senator Luger outlined, whether it's Nigeria or South Sudan or Somalia or Yemen. These countries or the crises in these countries represent an unprecedented uh, risk to uh, 20 million people. They are on the brink of famine. Worldwide, we're told that 795 million people still go to bed on an empty stomach every night. None of these famines are a natural phenomenon. They share three root causes, among them conflict, of course, number two, corruption, and number three, climate change. We know that competition for scarce resources can lead to violence and migration. In the 2014 Worldwide Threat Assessment Report, the U.S. Director of National Intelligence at that time said, and I quote, lack of adequate food would be a destabilizing factor in countries important to U.S. national security that do not have the financial or technical abilities to solve their internal food security problems, unquote. Three years later, that prediction is already coming true. The 2017 version of that same report issued by the Trump administration cites food insecurity as the driver of conflict in Yemen and also in uh, Venezuela. The terrorist group ISIS is using hunger as a weapon of war, cutting off resources to embattled communities in Iraq and Syria until they're so starved for food and fuel that resistance is diminished. In Nigeria, Boko Haram has caused famine conditions by forcing hundreds of thousands of farmers off of their land. 450,000 Nigerian children are expected to suffer from life-threatening malnutrition just in 2017. So in this context, child nutrition and agriculture have never been more important. Major progress has made, been made since Feed the Future's inception, from poverty reduction to the number of farmers uh, reached to the number of loans uh, accessed. Poverty has dropped between 7% and 36% in the Feed the Future-focused countries, and child stunting, a measure of chronic undernutrition, has dropped by as much as 40% in some of these countries. And while U.S. government programs are critical to these efforts, the private sector's role has been, been significant as well. In 2015 alone, Feed the Future leveraged more than $150 million in private sector resources to maximize the results and transform agricultural systems for um, farming families. So while I'm often frustrated by the partisan gridlock on Capitol Hill, solving the complex challenges of global food security has remained one of the few nonpartisan issues, thankfully, and I should say also so far. This year, the Trump administration, unfortunately, has proposed uh, roughly 30% cut to the international affairs budget. Senator Luger mentioned that. I'm glad I'm repeating it because we have to repeat it. This is risky 
it is short-sighted and it is wrong and we have to prevent that kind of a cut from going into effect. I think the opposition to it uh, actually is bipartisan. Underfunding programs that fight hunger, build agricultural capacity, and improve global health will impact not only our reputation around the world and our partnerships in the international community, but that kind of an action, that kind of a cut, will have national security consequences that we can't clearly predict today. As we're already in July of 2017, it's time to start preparing for 2018, when we'll need to reauthorize the Global Food Security Act and debate the international food assistance issues in the context of the Farm Bill. As a member of the Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry Committee, I'm open to conversation about how to reform and improve our food assistance programs. But I will oppose, I will oppose aggressively indiscriminate cuts uh, to these budgets. Hunger is not an isolated issue. It's related to health, education, and economic prosperity. A budget that abandons our leadership role on these issues and puts many lives at risk should be opposed by both political parties. So we have hard work to do, um, and I know this group is not uh, unfamiliar with hard work. So we have hard work ahead of us, both in terms of the appropriations fight as well as the reauthorization fight. In 2015, with the help of so many advocates in this room, we did pass the Global Food Security Act, and, uh, or 2016, I should say, and it passed the Global Food Security Act and got assigned in the law. That was at, at that time a remarkable feat, especially in the rancorous and partisan atmosphere within which we were working. And I have faith that the people in this room can help us win other battles on these issues. But I think we have to be mindful not only of the challenge uh, of achieving that, but also of our obligation the obligation to reduce food insecurity and help bring about a safer world. We all remember John F. Kennedy's inaugural address where he challenged us. He asked us to do more for our country. There's also another line in that inaugural address that maybe can be a guidepost and an inspiration for us today and in the days ahead. He said at one point in the inauguration, here on earth, God's work must truly be our own, unquote. I have no doubt that everyone in this room feels that same sense of commitment on these issues. And I want to thank you for helping all of us uh, to do this work, and thank you for helping us on the, the critically important work that we, we might call God's work. Thank you very much.
For any of those that are sitting in the back, if you're standing, feel free to come up to the front since we have some open seating if you wish. Um, so to begin with our panel, I'm going to do very short introductions so we can have maximize our time. Uh, first, Rob Bertram, who's currently the chief scientist at the Bureau for Food Security at the U.S. Agency for International Development. I had the joy of working directly with Rob when I was with USAID. Uh, what I like about Rob is when you look at this, there's sometimes there's the technical side and there's the political side, and Rob actually understands both. Um, but he he also can dive deep into um, issues in, in terms of research and development and how technology can also really make a difference of, as what Senator Luger was referring to as well. We Next, we have Lana Stahl, and Lana is with uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation. The reason that I wanted to bring Lana on was because she has the rare... Um, a rare background of spanning multiple agencies. So she has worked at senior levels at both USDA, USAID, and now MCC, where she covers um, agriculture under her, along with many other things that she does at MCC. But she really understands the interplay of why the U.S. government should be a leader in this, as well as that interagency component which is a huge part of Feed the Future. And last, we have Bruce Cameron um, from OPIC. I was appreciative that Senator Casey did bring up the role of the private sector. And the reason I wanted OPIC at the table is because I think a lot of people forget all the agencies that are engaged in Feed the Future and, and aren't even quite aware of what OPIC is. And so I was hopeful that, that Bruce would join us to really help us understand how we're leveraging private sector investments um, to, to think about how that is included in the U.S. leadership effort. So to begin, Rob. Thank you, Kimberly, and good morning, everybody. Um, I want to start by just reminding us that food security, I think the reason it's so resonant is that it brought back, starting about 10 years ago, agriculture and nutrition together. They weren't always together, even though without nutrition, agriculture is a, a drier subject. Food security puts, put the human face on development investments uh, because it's ultimately about ending the scourge of hunger. And that really resonated, as we heard today, with Congress and, frankly, with the American people. So last year, as we've heard, the Global Food Security Act was a, a huge vote of confidence in this approach. And one critical dimension that I want to flag for us now and going forward of Feed the Future that's enshrined in the, in the new law is the accountability dimension. In other words, that we have to document and measure our impacts. And we do it not just at the level of a project, but at the level of a whole population. So just to reiterate what Senator Casey said, across the zones where, we, where we're working, extreme poverty fell 19% on average, stunting 26%. This is really unprecedented progress, and it's faster than in other areas of those countries where we weren't working. Now, despite the progress we're making, there's no time for complacency because we still have over 3 million children a year dying from causes related to undernutrition. We also heard this morning, again, it was great to hear it, about the broad American alliance that is engaged on food security. We have faith-based groups, farmer cooperatives, commodity groups, U.S. universities, big agribusiness companies, and small, all coming together to combat hunger from its very uh, immediate near-term dimensions all the way through to reducing chronic hunger as measured through child stunting. Uh, the GFSA 
confirmed the role of, of this uh, uh, alliance and that broad vision, and it confirmed the role of agriculture-led growth as, as an extremely effective means of combating both extreme poverty but also reducing hunger. Now, 11 agencies joined together last year after the passage of the law to prepare uh, together a global food security strategy. It highlights some things, and, and, and when Congress wrote the law, they upped the bar for us. And one of the bars they raised was on nutrition. So we've added the dimension of, of water, sanitation, and hygiene, which are key factors in child stunting and nutrition outcomes. The law also doubles down our efforts on safe and nutritious foods, uh, things like uh, more productive and available uh, vegetables, animal source food, legumes. And it also reminds us that there, the hygiene is an important aspect, and a lot of these really important quality foods, like things like dairy and eggs and fish and others that are so critical to human development and child growth, also bring with them significant food safety challenges. So that, that goes together. There's a big opportunity there, but there's also a challenge. Uh, and, and, and one of the great things about that opportunity is for the rural poor to find ways to connect to emerging and, and, and growing markets in cities and towns for diverse quality foods. So that's a, a great opportunity for both urban and rural gains in food security. We're also going to be looking more intentionally about synergies with nutrition and health. Uh, we heard just in the recent discussions about the, the importance of deworming. We can co-locate our programs and we can co-design them. The second major addition is resilience. How do we keep shocks from becoming crises and, and thus reduce the need for future humanitarian assistance? A lot of learning has occurred and now we're putting it into the practice and the strategy. In Ethiopia, we found that the Households and farms where we were working in resilience, only 4% of those required emergency assistance in a recent drought, whereas the ones we weren't working with, that number was 30%. So we can get ahead of these problems. And in last year's Malawi uh, drought in southern Africa, in Malawi, we found that it only cost us $75 a year to work with families to enhance their resilience so that they didn't need food aid, whereas Feeding that same family costs $400 a year. So it's, we, we can prevent those costs by investing in ways that help people help themselves. Quick mention for science. I've got to call out science. Uh, the drought-tolerant maize is a big part of that story in southern Africa. It's now reached 2.5 million hectares. 50 million people are benefiting. And in droughts, it, will, it can add one, one and a half tons per hectare to yield. And last year, in the middle of that drought, it added a million tons of maize harvest uh, and worth $160 million to that, that region. As we heard this morning, science is not a one-way street. One of the reasons that U.S. farmers and agribusiness and universities are behind us is that they know by doing uh, good, they can also do well. The sorghum growers want us to work on heat tolerance because even though they know that we can learn things in Mali that will come back to be useful in Oklahoma. Uh, we have uh, great stories around wheat diseases where the wheat growers are strongly behind this work because we can get ahead of things like wheat stem rust and wheat blast and prevent them from causing harm here. A subtler story maybe is how broader U.S. business is benefiting from the economic growth in our partner countries. But we know that in the Feed the Future focused countries, 
ag exports from the United States to those countries went up a billion dollars during the period of Feed the Future. So this growth pays off, not just in imports like soy for animal feed, but also for machinery, knowledge products, and other things that our agro-industry and our universities can offer. So again, uh, it's a doing well by doing good story in a lot of respects. Uh, we're doing exciting things, Kimberly now, working on country selection and planning and upgrading our monitoring evaluation learning to really continue with that accountability theme. Great. Thank you, Rob. Lana. And I know while you mentioned maybe people in the room aren't familiar with OPIC, they also might not be particularly familiar with MCC. So let me start for a couple of minutes to just share how MCC fits into this broader suite of 11 agencies that are part of the global food security strategy. So the Millennium Challenge Corporation was created in 2004 and is a small independent US government agency that works with a select group of well-governed poor countries to reduce poverty solely through economic growth as an approach. And these investments matter because, as Rob said, they help create, and, and our senators um, who were with us today, they create a more stable, secure world with new business opportunities abroad for American firms. And growth in agriculture, on average, is at least twice as effective in reducing poverty as growth in other sectors. And that's both through directly raising farm incomes and indirectly generating employment and reducing food prices. And it's also, as we've discussed today, an area where American businesses are global leaders. And so since 2004, 23 of MCC's 33 compacts, or over $5 billion, have been targeted to address sources of food insecurity. And MCC takes an integrated market-led and systems approach to addressing constraints to food security that include investments in things such as transportation, storage infrastructure, irrigation systems, access to finance, farmer training, and nutrition and sanitation. In over half of our compacts, we've also helped strengthen property rights and improve land policy to ensure farmers, many of whom are women, as well as processors and investors have access to land and that government institutions can effectively manage land resources. So for example of an MCC investment in food security, we've signed a $437 million compact with the government of Niger that addresses two constraints, poor access to markets and a lack of access to water for agriculture and livestock. This five-year compact will target key investments such as fertilizer policy changes, road and irrigation infrastructure, climate resilient agriculture, and livestock improvements, working closely with other actors such as the World Bank and USAID. Uh, why does this matter? Since 2012, as Rob was saying, US exports to Niger actually have increased by 23% in areas including machinery, aircraft, and vehicles supporting productive sectors such as agriculture. This country is also located in an incredibly fragile region of the world that faces threats of conflict, terrorism, and trafficking of people, and illicit goods. The government of Niger is a US partner in the fight against extremism and in promoting stability in the region. So you can see in Niger alone the full spectrum of why these food security investments matter to America. And so now to get to the global food security strategy and how MCC fits in. 
When MCC was created in 2004, good global development principles were embedded in its model, including results, accountability and evidence, and country ownership. And so let me reflect for a moment on how these same principles uh, relate to both MCC and Feed the Future and now the Global Food Security Strategy. So on country ownership, country-driven project development and implementation is one of MCC's guiding principles. Our partner countries actually develop the compact proposals that address their most significant barriers to economic growth. Compact development begins with an analysis of the constraints to economic growth and poverty in that country and include a gender and social inclusion assessment and an investment opportunity assessment and robust consultations with the private sector and with civil society. Compacts are actually implemented through a Millennium Challenge account that's established by the partner country and overseen by a local board of directors that again includes private sector and civil society members. So I like to use the analogy if we literally hand the keys to the car to the partner country to drive. And we have a foot on the brake, foot on the gas, we've set a lot of the rules of the road, but they're driving. And then to ensure the capacity of the partner countries to deliver long-term results from these projects, our interventions focus on strengthening local institutions that are responsible for operating and sustaining uh, compact financed infrastructure post-compact. Speed the Future, through its country strategies, emphasis on ownership, has also sought to very much embody this same principle of country ownership. On accountability and evidence, MCC partner countries are responsible for implementing programs, as I've said, with strict requirements for monitoring and evaluation measured by an independent evaluator. When Feed the Future was established, MCC provided technical support to create the Feed the Future results framework and common indicators to embed that same sense of monitoring and evaluation into these US government programs. And on results, as with every MCC program, Feed the Future has established clear baselines and zones of influence that allow it to measure results Yes, at the outcome level, hectares under improved technology, but also at the impact level around stunting and poverty itself. As Kimberly said, I'm perhaps unique on this panel in that I've worked uh, on three agencies that are part of the Feed the Future strategy. Um, so let me also speak for a moment on why it matters that we have 11 agencies that are part of this strategy and how that can pay off for us as Americans. So MCC, as is in good donor practice, uh, considers the donor landscape uh, and country strategies that exist when we are doing a compact. And we work collaboratively as part of the Feed the Future team and with other US government agencies to ensure complementarity. But when you have an interagency team that is working closely together and understands deeply the technical expertise that does exist across the 11 agencies, you can bring those comparative advantages to bear in a way that allows us to hit the numbers that Rob and Senator Casey shared, the 19% and 20% reductions in the areas we're working in our top impact goals. For example, 70% of what MCC invests in is infrastructure. Um, and MCC's leadership and technical uh, expertise in infrastructure and urban planning projects will allow us to continue to address food security issues in a time of shifting demographics. That means more people are moving from rural to urban areas, and as Rob said, that's one of the changes that the global food security strategy is seeking to address. 
In Niger, our resident country director engages closely with the USAID mission and the US ambassador. And in Washington, MCC is part of the Niger support team. So in conclusion, our food security investments are strategically important to the United States. And MCC is proud to be part of this 11 agency and our agency team and looks forward to continuing to adapt and learn with all of you in this room to deliver results for the American people, the American economy, and our national security. Thank you very much, Lana. I'll just interject one thing. When I led a congressional delegation last summer to Senegal, part of what I wanted to look at was, you know, how is the whole of government effort really looking? And we looked at a lot of MCC projects in collaboration with USAID projects, and it was impressive. And I, my job is to be critical, but I couldn't find many critical things. Um, because MCC had, they had done their compact first, but they had built roads um, to connect, you know, towns that had not been connected before opening up markets. And then you had USAID projects coming in overlaying on that, building up those markets. And it was a real example of why that interagency effort not just plays out in Washington, that's one element, but the most important element and the whole point of this thing is how we're actually making an impact in the developing countries where we target. Um, so I was, I was very impressed with that in Senegal. Um, on to you, Bruce. So the, the, the senators did a great job of laying out the, the foundational or fundamental issues of why global food security is important to the U.S., U.S. government and Rob and Lana have really, you know, it makes my job easier and somewhat talking about how we fit together. But similar to Lana, I'm going to take a couple minutes and talk about OPIC first so you understand how it then fits into the interagency process. And so uh, apologies to those who may know OPIC already, but basically we're the development finance institution or development bank of the U.S. government. We're an independent agency. The full name is Overseas Private Investment Corporation. We go by OPIC. Some 40 years ago, our programs were originally part of AID, and we were carved out then by Congress to be an independent agency focused on leveraging the private sector. And what's interesting is if you actually go back and look at the history of OPIC and some other things that were going on in the aid world at that time, there was some tremendous thinking going on in Congress about now we fast forward to some of the very same issues that Global Food Security Act is trying to tackle. Some, of, some great thinkers in Congress were thinking through many of those same issues. And so at the time that OPIC was created, the idea of leveraging the capital and management know-how of the U.S. private sector was, was a different and new concept. And uh, having worked at OPIC over 20 years, it's been interesting to watch the rest of the world catch up, particularly in the past five, six years. What you see more and more people who work in this space saying, hey, we need, there's only so many grant dollars in the world. We need to use those carefully. And the real money and the real know-how is in the private sector. We need to figure out a better way to leverage the resources of the private sector. So OPIC, we, I think for a small agency of some 300 people, we do a pretty good job. We're self-sustaining. We make a couple hundred million dollars of net income per year. And I tend to speak in round numbers. If you want to follow up, we can get you exact numbers. And my colleague, Amanda Burke, is in the back of the room, who's in our external affairs. And again, we can get you exact numbers. But um, the idea of OPIC is self-sustaining. We, we make loans of anywhere from a million up to 250 million per project. 
We basically can provide direct lending or loan guarantees. I'm not going to delve into the super detail on that at this point. We also have a political risk insurance program where we provide political risk insurance policies on projects as well. We work with a broad range, a broad range of U.S. businesses across multiple sectors. Another thing that's been interesting, and I would say the past 10 or 15 years, is to watch OPIC evolve. We really work in frontier sectors with frontier businesses. So when I first got to OPIC, we wouldn't do medical services. So now we do medical clinics and hospitals. We didn't used to do education projects. We've evolved into that space. We didn't used to do microfinance. We've evolved into that space. We didn't used to do housing projects. We've evolved into that space. And actually, when I mentioned the startup of OPIC, agriculture was one of the things that Congress wanted us to focus on. That had tapered off in OPIC. And what you see because of Feed the Future and now the Global Food Security Act, that's been reinvigorated at OPIC. And we have a broad range of projects from small to large that we've been doing over the past five or ten years. And, and again, as part of the interagency process, we're trying to find ways to do more. Um, and the one point that I want to be sure to get in here is what's really interesting, when you think about the U.S. economy, is not only for the benefit of our economy, but economies abroad. And, and the point was made about how large, uh, how much agriculture and food represents to the U.S. economy. And then the, the pitfalls or the downturns that parts of our economy, you know, rural areas are having, to me, and maybe it's I've been at OPIC too long, but it, it seems like a natural fit of this is this perfect opportunity to leverage the U.S. private sector to help them create jobs here while we create opportunities abroad. And the other great thing about OPIC is we focus on the investment side. So we're looking at investments in the countries. But another great thing besides the fact that we're self-sustaining is statutorily we can't cause even one U.S. job loss from the projects we support. So it has to be a win-win situation. It has to be good for the country that we're working in as well as good for our own economy. And um, it's just I'm trying to be brief, but I think we're an important – one of those important tools in the toolkit, we're specifically set up to leverage the private sector. And then just one last thing, and we'll go to, so it's to watch the evolution of Feed the Future and the agencies learning to try to work together better. And then Power Africa came along, and granted that's a different sector, but Power Africa learned from Feed the Future, figured out better ways to come together as agencies to leverage leverage specific private sector projects, and now we have the evolution of the Global Food Security Act, an act of Congress that calls on us to take those lessons and go further. So one of the things, and it's just baby steps, trials that we've been doing is we've actually taken a few companies and had the 11 agencies plus Export-Import Bank, plus Trade and Development Agency, plus Small Business Administration join us in group conference calls to talk to the same private sector entities. Now, we don't have results on that yet, but we're trying to figure out a better way to make it easier for private sector companies to approach the whole of government and really be able to lay out their strategies at the front end of the process. And it, it will evolve over time, but, but I'm encouraged because it's been an evolution. So I think, you know, we're trying to move forward. This isn't the end. The, to me, this is some, we're somewhere in the middle and we're trying to go further and do more. So it's been a really good thing. Thank you. 
Thank you, Bruce. I like you sort of slip in there that they make several hundred dollars, several hundred million dollars a year. They're self-sustaining. I mean, I think that's one aspect when people are unsure about what our tax dollars are doing. Um, OPIC is, is making us money, <laughs> which is a good reason to keep it around. Um, I'm going to just ask one question because in the interest of time, but you know, I, when I think about this, when I was thinking about this event, one thing I really want to get out of it is what's changed? You know, we've had this act, we have this strategy. What's really different? And so I'm going to throw that back to you. I mean, Rob, you made it really clear that Congress, you said, made it to stick, made it to stick, I can't speak, made it take it up a notch, meaning talking about the synergies with nutrition and the greater focus on nutrition and resilience. Um, you know, you've talked about how you have to come together and write the strategy and have this interagency. But on maybe the programmatic level or maybe even whether it's country selection, we can't say much about funding at this point, but, you know, what do you see as the greatest differences of having this strategy and moving forward? Um, how is it going to be different than it ever was before? Is, is nutrition synergy the number one, or are there other elements that um, we should be talking about? I think actually the, the discussion this morning gives us some clues about what's different. I, we learned a lot over the last seven, eight years. Uh, you know, at first it was a fiat, you shall work together, whole of government. Well, that takes time, as Bruce alluded to, to get that right. So over this time, different agencies have really seen how their strengths complement one another. The other... Uh, you mentioned nutrition. That's certainly an area where we are going to do better. There's, you know, everybody knows the Water for the World Act, I think, and, and the WASH investments that are made. We can think about how to align investments there in ways that really help us uh, drive nutrition gains faster. And, of course, water is, is an essential factor in food security as well. I think we'll be focusing uh, a fair amount there. Um, the other thing that um, is... I think different is this resilience piece. And that, that is pushing us into some tougher areas, to be frank. I mean, it's the, these are, are riskier areas where we need all the tools. But we have a lot of those new tools. Uh, Senator Luger mentioned the knowledge tools now that he employs on his farm. We're working on those better weather forecasting, better decision making on the part of communities and farmers and families. So I think that whole information piece is going to be uh, larger and then finally, Kimberly, the message that came through here, I hope, is that this is a partnership with our partner countries as well. They are investing way more than we are, so I think uh, more and more you're going to see this, you know, leading from behind sort of approach where we're really uh, they're, they're driving the car. That that Lana said we can learn from MCC's approach. Governance matters. Uh, all of that, I think, is going to be a stronger uh, emphasis within our country partnerships and regional integration efforts going forward. Certainly happy to see the emphasis on governance. Lana and Bruce, any other thoughts on what's really different? So I'd just add that I think part of the history that was laid out here today from 2008 to today uh, the importance of the act was also in signaling the intention for this to be a sustained area of global leadership for the United States and that there was strong bipartisan support for that. And that matters for our partner countries' interest and willingness in partnering with us and for our ability to, um, you know, uh, 
be, continue to be clear leaders and set the stage for how the world invests in food security in a way that matches our global expertise in this space. And then the second thing I'd say about what has changed is the world has also changed in the seven years that we've um, since Feed the Future and in the 10 years really almost since uh, the last food price crisis. And so as Rob said, part of what the strategy seeks to do is also ensure that our approaches are responding to the changes in digitalization. You know, the fact that tractors can drive themselves using GIS technology, which was not the case even just 10 years ago. Um, the way we can use the fact that people have cell phones to think about financing and agriculture in different ways. And then also these trends, as you pointed out, from urban to rural and the original smallholder small farmer and mostly rural focus of Feed the Future looks different in a number of our partner countries today because of the ways those economies have evolved in the last several years. Anything you want to add? Just, just uh, the same thing. You know, a congressional bipartisan act. The connection of agriculture and development. It'd be great to see the national security aspect. But the fact that it brought those two together, it's just outstanding. I'd like to turn to the audience now, and we're actually going to start by turning to Senator Luger to see if he has any response or comments or questions to anything that our panelists said. Senator Luger? Let me ask uh, this question because it's apparent that uh, the Feed the Future Act has made a big difference in terms of the United States leadership abroad. Uh, but. Um, we have an argument apparently going on in politics in the United States over globalization, in quotes. Uh, a good number of people criticizing globalization. Now, let me just ask, is there any uh, way to have an index, any finding of what the impact of Feed the Future or our other programs are on citizens of rural America now? In other words, those persons who feel they have been left behind, who often are described as, as people who have been dropped out of our American political situation. And you've made the point that uh, it's very probable that uh, Feed the Future has enhanced the situation there. But uh, do we have any ways of, of measuring that, any way of making that point, so that uh, the globalization idea becomes very popular in rural America? quite apart from abroad. Thank you very much. Anyone want to begin on that? <laughs> My impression, it's a, great, it's a great question, Senator. My impression is that the agriculture community, which is very predominant, of course, in rural areas, is perhaps one of the most global communities already ahead of us in thinking in globally. Trade is not a dirty word in, in the agricultural sector, I think. And, and so there are some natural connections here. I think the key thing has been able to, sh to, to document the benefits, that it's, it's, this is not a, a one-way street of us just helping others. We are gaining in the process, whether it's because pests and diseases don't respect political boundaries and what goes around comes around and we can get ahead of the curve, or uh, with respect to new export opportunities as these countries emerge from extreme poverty where they import very little to where countries where there's a demand for the kinds of things that U.S. rural areas 
are, are able to supply. I agree with you, though, that we need to be more intentional about trying to measure and document this. The other category I will ironically add for Rob is uh, that the seed and other technologies used by farmers of all sizes in the United States, as he mentioned earlier, often we're able to directly find a variety from work that's been done in Africa or in Asia that then can be an important part of small and large farmers in the United States being able to um, have successful yields and reach those four times the productivity gains that you've seen in your lifetime on a continued basis even um, as you know things shift in our own country. So I think those we can certainly track the varieties that come from our joint work um, with countries around the world, but it's, uh, it is a challenge to get down to individual people. Um, I think one of the things that Feed the Future, and as Bruce was saying, the conversation with American businesses helps you do is actually take a state by state, you know, so you know, your leadership and even thinking about Indiana and how would a country, how would a state like Indiana, how would you talk about the different benefits that come from the global leadership of America in agriculture? Um, and I think thinking about it on a state-by-state -state basis makes sense depending on who are, in some cases, the benefit is in machinery. Uh, and so where are those uh, important parts of our own economy located and how do we connect the story. So I think it's a nuanced state-by-state -state type discussion that we should be thinking about how we um, advance. And some things are harder to measure than others, but certainly it, it's an important part of this, uh, this support. Yeah, absolutely. I think part of it is it's, it's hard to figure out how to document and um, make that list of how many U.S. businesses are actually interested in. Okay, trade might be a little bit easier, but actual investment abroad, when you're talking about rural communities, and all the agencies together, right, USDA and all the rest of us, they're, they're there, they want to go, they want to work in partnership with us. But And I was saying last night, that we had a dinner, and I was explaining that OPIC management asked me that question. And I said, it's really hard for me to make a formal list because it's a matter of like those companies finding OPIC and Connect or the other agencies. But I can assure you, after listening for seven or eight years, to come, they're there. People are trying to go. People are trying to figure out ways to partner of all sizes and shapes. But I think Lana's get you know, there's got to be a more effective way to work through the state economic development agencies and in all of our partnerships to make it a little easier for the companies to figure out how to do it. Great. Let's turn to the audience. We are going to have limited time for questions, so raise your hand high. This may be it. So if you have a question or comment, raise your hand. We'll start with Phil in the front. Hi. I'm Please stand up so that our live webinar can see you All and right. introduce yourself. Thank you, Phil. Hi. I'm Phil Thomas. I'm with George Mason University. For that, I worked with GAO on food security issues for 40 years. Uh, you know, I, like others, applaud the political will on the Global Food Security Act and the resultant strategy. Uh, the emphasis on accountability is long overdue and welcome. The concern that I think a lot of us who continue to analyze food security issues is, how are we affecting governance? Governance is this big elephant in the room in all these programs. 
how do we get the uh, governments in the countries to be more responsible? And when we do that, can we get them to take over responsibility for the programs and where we can segue out? That's one issue. The next is private-public partnership. There is an enormous amount of rhetoric under, about the new alliance uh, for food security and nutrition that was passed in uh, 2012. It was established by the Obama administration. There's a lot of talk about it. What are the results? You know, have we got a quantifiable, comprehensive analysis? And if we do, what private-public partnerships work? And can those partnerships can we develop a formula that can be applied to different countries so that we have a standard formula but it can be flexible in different countries? So it seems that's a key issue. And I know there's been reference to national security issues. And we're having a conference at Stimson Center tomorrow on this and food security. And, and the issue here is how do we get national security and food security to be operationalized where it works? not just in humanitarian issues, but in the longer-term issues associated with resilience. So those are four key areas. Thank you. Excellent. Right here. Hi, Rebecca Harrington from Social Impact. Um, you mentioned tractors that drive themselves. And I was wondering how have, more broadly, how have digital technologies influenced where we are now? And what do you see their role being as we move forward? Thank you. Other questions? Right here. Thank you. Paul Gannett, I'm with ACDI VOCA. I applaud the, the progressive, forward-leaning areas of leveraging private sector and agencies working together. On behalf of the people here, I, I thought I would ask about the elephant in the room of where do you see things in about six months regarding funding for global food security from our Congress? Good question, Paul. Other questions or comments from the audience? Do Emmy right here in the front. Thank you. Emmy Simmons, uh, resident advisor, non-resident advisor here at CSIS. Um, I have a question to add or to sort of carry Rob's emphasis on nutrition as being a really salient new element that has been introduced by the Global Food Security Act. And you mentioned, Rob, fruits and vegetables, animal source foods, and legumes. But in fact, this is one of the areas where the U.S. has not been a great leader on, these, on, the, on the development of these crops. They are labor-intensive. Um, our dairy folks in the United States, to cite Senator Luger's issue, are facing a real constraint in terms of finding markets for, for dairy products. So how, do you, how are you thinking looking forward as to development of nutrition, the agricultural basis for dietary diversity, the introduction of more nutrient-dense commodities and products, and engaging different sectors, and this perhaps goes to Bruce's point, um, different sectors of the American agribusiness and food industry um, other than the staple crop producers. We all know about wheat and corn and soybeans, right? But do we know about the fruits, vegetables, dairy, beef, and, and, and chickens and all that sort of thing? How are we taking, thinking about incorporating that new set of agricultural enterprises in this nutrition focus going forward? Excellent. Thank you. We'll take one more. Go ahead. Awesome. Uh, Larry Schaefer, Schaefer Global Management. Um, 
Two, two things, really. The, uh, the term sustainable agriculture is being thrown around quite a bit. And in an effort to try to put it into a context, can we put in some language to define it? And as that relates to RFPs, as it relates to funding. So some of those things in the definition, no fossil fuels usage to, for the production, no chemical usage for the production, water conservation practices for the production, um, goals to attain. I know that it's difficult for large commercial producers to be able to do those things up front, but if we can strive to meet those goals, that would be outstanding in the efforts um, in that initiative. Um, the other piece that Senator Luca was talking about, we were talking about farmers in America. How can we retrain farmers in America for different technologies? Um, things like hydroponics, aquaponics, um, producing food indoors versus our vulnerabilities being exposed to outdoors in soil environments and going to a non-soil, more biosecure environment for large commercial productions. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to switch things a little bit, and Bruce, I'm going to ask you to go first, and we'll go down. So for our panelists, um, <laughs> it was a lot that we covered, from governance to new alliance, national security, digital technologies, teaching technologies, funding, if you can say anything on that, um, nutrition, of course, some great points by Emmy, and then, of course, defining sustainable ag. So tackle that as you wish, which questions pertain to you and what you'd like to cover. Um. I'll make four co comments. Sust sustainable agriculture, I mean, OPIC goes deal by deal, project by project, and of course we look at the issues that are policies that flow for, as part of the U.S. government. Our, our key issue is business viability, right? If we make a loan to a project, we want to know it can repay us. Now certainly we have other policy guidelines that get layered on as a U.S. government, but the starting point is, is this thing going to be viable as a business? To the uh, funding question, and I'm, don't worry, Amanda, I'm not going. The, you know, who, who's got the crystal ball on the funding question, really? Who in the room knows how this is all going to play out? The, uh, the digital question, just a week and a half ago, we uh, hosted a meeting at OPIC on smallholder farmer finance, and it was specific to the question of, I mean, it's a whole, it was a holistic conversation, but what we were trying to drill down to is, and some of you probably know, some don't, that with smallholder farmer fields, many of them aren't even mapped. So how do you create a lending program to farmers where you don't even know their fields are? And we were getting very specific of, can you use handheld phones to actually map the boundary of the fields? So from a financing standpoint, you can have a sense of where your borrowers, bad borrowers are, but also as a management tool so you can start to make strategic decisions. And it was interesting. We had just under 50 people in the room plus another 15 on the phone. People flew in from around the world. And they spent nine hours with us. We had a little lunch break, but we started at 8.30 and went till 6. And people were tuned into that conversation. So clearly there's an interest in figure, you know, f figuring it out. And then um, back to the, the concepts. And, and the concepts of what works in the development arena for food security and OPIC is one of the tools. We're not the only tool in the idea of leverage in the private sector. Personally, I think it's a really important tool, but not to the exclusion of the other tools. Sometimes grants by themselves are really important. And I think, I, I guess Amanda stepped out, but um, I think we have about 22 or $23 billion of active exposure right now, definitely over $20 billion. 
We do several billion dollars of exposure per year and, as Kimberly alluded to, make a couple hundred million in net income per year. So now that's not just in agriculture. That's across all the sectors. But I think it's a pretty good indication that that idea of leveraging private capital as well as grants is a good concept that works. The issue is, can we do, I think, can we do more of that? Um, since that's where the resources. But the bigger questions, I'm going to defer to my colleagues on the right. Okay, we'll leave Rob the cleanup job, but I'll pick a few <laughs> to touch on. So on governance, Phil, I agree it's critical, and I think part of what you've heard us say and the reason we've not rolled out the Feed the Future Focus countries yet for this year is because country ownership is critical, and we are in dialogue with the countries to ensure they care about this more deeply than we do and are willing to put, as Rob said, the far more significant package of you know, investments in place that ours can supplement and round out and um, you know, help push difficult pieces forward. And I'd say part of how we think about governance at MCC, but I think is consistent with where Feed the Future has gone, is to say that the investments we are making also become a leverage for the difficult policy decisions we need these countries to be making, whether that's in the seed sector or in fertilizer and inputs or other pieces that also, when shifted to a more private sector model, create opportunities for American businesses and create a better investment climate for our economy um, is part of what we are focused on, both through Feed the Future and any MCC compact in an agriculture space uh, tackles those tough regulatory and policy issues. And that's something we need to ensure continues to be part of the comprehensive approach we're taking to how do you eventually help these countries uh, graduate from this type of U.S. assistance. It includes creating that enabling environment and then having the abilities to continue the investments that um, are important to keep agricultural growth and to keep nutrition on track over time. Um, on digital technologies, uh, one of the other hats I used to wear is uh, heading the Global Development Lab at USAID. So uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about how the world is changing and how that means development needs to change. And Chris, who's here in the audience, has led the Joint Bureau of Food Security Lab program around digital technologies and ag. Um, and, and I'd say digital is changing both the world and everything we're doing in nutrition, health, agriculture, even infrastructure investments. Um, to give you an example, I mentioned how often a core part going to still the policy space as well is changing land rights and land tenure, which is not an easy issue in any country, uh, but has very, I mean, you look across where MCC is doing that today, which is in a, a decent chunk of countries, I want to say six, but that number could be off by a couple right now today where we're doing land tenure programs. We are very much using digital technologies to do that um, and helping create digital e-governance type systems that allow transactions on land um, and then, then enable the investability of the land the way Bruce was speaking to. So that's one example clearly in finance for farmers. 
uh, digital technology and digital finance is a critical piece of how you both unlock opportunities for the rural smallholder farmers and then more directly connect those more highly nutritious foods that they are growing with the urban markets in a way that gets them better market prices and creates that enabling win-win um, you know, system between the rural and the urban areas. Uh, on nutrition, uh, we've learned a lot, and I won't go into the scaling up nutrition effort or the sun you know, movement as you may know it, uh, or the thousand days, but we do know that it takes not just certain types of nutritious food, but as came up uh, last night, deworming, as came up this morning, you know, sanitation and water. Uh, so our compact in Indonesia has stunting as a target, and we've sought to work with the Indonesian government on how do you actually sequence and align nutrition interventions, maternal and child health interventions, sanitation interventions, all through a community-driven uh, model. Uh, and it has been hard because that requires working across multiple ministries, multiple. Uh, but it is important that we continue to tackle that difficult work of trying to get the entire uh, alignment. Um, it, it used to be true, I, I've stepped away from working deeply in nutrition, but it used to be true that the number was if you scaled up every known um, kind of technology around nutrition to 100%, you'd still only reduce stunting by 30%. Am I right? 20, 20, okay. Uh, and so we know what we were doing isn't enough, and it takes a different set of approaches and tools. And some of that can be actually different types of crops, and I'll let Rob talk about what I think is a very good story about USAID's investments in that space. But it also means tackling sanitation, which is not easy, and it also means you know, getting um, that comprehensive system in place or helping a government get that system in place, I should say. Um, and on retraining farmers in America, uh, certainly when I was wearing a USDA hat, that was very much a core part of what USDA was thinking about, of how to help American farmers succeed even in a very different um, you know, rural development environment. And I'm confident that Secretary Perdue will continue that work of thinking about how you help American farmers also continue to be successful in this changing world. Um, and so there's not a USDA person on this panel, uh, but I am confident that is a core focus that uh, that department will continue to take forward as part of our suite of uh, agencies working on food security. Thank you, Lana. And Chris, if you can just raise your hand. <laughs> Sorry, no, I'm talking about you. So the woman from Social Impact, Chris is the guru for digital technology <laughs> for ag and at the Global Development Lab at USAID, so you might connect. Sorry to call you out, Chris. That's what happens if you speak on one of our panels. We'll always call you out. All right, Rob, go ahead. Okay, Let, I'd like to start with the governance question that Phil raised. Lana's already referred to this. It really tends to work out through policy, and we have really upped our game. It wasn't there right at the very beginning, but over the last five or six years, we've really upped our game in policy work. And one of the, responding back to your question, Kimberly, one of the differences going forward is we will have more emphasis on national level engagement, like policy, not just in our zones of influence, but at the country level. So an example of that, and the idea, of course, here is to create a transparent and predictable environment so that businesses 
will want to invest, whether they're international businesses or U.S. business or especially local business and regional business. So a good case in point, that drought-tolerant maize story I mentioned, I didn't say the fact that 100 different African seed companies were involved in reaching all those farmers and that 2.5 million hectares. Those companies, almost all of them, didn't exist 10 years ago. That's a, a, a result of a changing policy environment that reflects commitment and leadership and developing that transparent, predictable uh, uh, environment, enabling environment. Uh, on nutrition, Emmy, um, we are uh, leveraging U.S. expertise, but you're right, we can do a better job of it. I think of Land O'Lakes, long period. Uh, the Farmer to Farmer program also can bring in agribusiness uh, to, to, uh, to bear on our programming. But also companies like Mars and Hershey are really interested in what developing countries are producing to sustain their U.S. business. So the potential there is very good, and, and we're working hard on that. And many other uh, uh, private sector partners that can get into these higher-value nutritious and knowledge-intensive commodities that you spoke of. One other sidebar comment on that. Jim Kim, president of the World Bank, he is taking the message to finance ministers. Your country will not be competitive in a global knowledge economy with 30, 40, 50 percent stunting. You have got to invest. So I'm hopeful that we're going to find a very receptive audience on the part of our partner countries who, as I said earlier, they're the biggest investors in this work. Sustainable agriculture, I want to just be real clear about this, that we really are focusing on optimizing input use to get sustainable intensification of systems in a way that's environmentally sustainable, but let's face it, I mean, African farmers need to use more fertilizer. One of, they are mining the soil. They are degrading their environment because they don't use enough fertilizer. They also need to manage the trees and the, the legumes and the biomass to get the optimal use of that. So we're, we're very much thinking in the direction uh, that you came. One of the ways, whether we're talking high-value crops, uh, sustainable agriculture practices, these are information-intensive uh, approaches. So this is where the digital comes in that Chris is our great expert on and, and, and thought leader on. You know, market information. This has been hugely important in leveling the field between rural producers and the market in Addis Ababa or Lilongwe. I mean, the, the fact that they know the price makes them much more powerful than they used to be when they were at the mercy of middlemen who maybe didn't have their best interests at heart. Uh, weather information a huge opportunity that we are exploiting here in the United States very intensively, but we can bring it, we can help partners bring it to smallholder communities in places like Africa and, and, and South Asia. Uh, extension information also around how to safely handle high value animal source foods, how to safely handle pesticides, this, you know, things that, that, that um, Having you, you need knowledge to, to use the right seeds, to use the right fertilizer in the right way and in the most effective uh, way. Uh, so knowledge is critical. And then, uh, let me see, I think maybe that was it. There were a lot of great questions, but, <laughs> but, but I really um, I, I, I can't say enough about how much uh, what we want to do really depends on giving farmers choices, informing consumers, 
and, 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 and allowing them to make decisions that are be in their best interest, but an environment that you know, rewards investment. We're trying to increase upside potential and reduce downside risk, and that drives investment at all levels, public, private, and on-farm. And it also depends on continued U.S. leadership, right? So, you know, some of the points that Senator Casey made in the opening about how this is a justice issue and, um, you know, cuts uh, to any of our development assistance, but particularly in this area when we've made great progress is, to use his words, risky and wrong. Um, my hope is that today you learned something new. Um, I also hope that I know many of you in this room are, you all come from different lenses, whether you're a policymaker or an advocacy um, organization, but that you will continue to push our policymakers so that we don't lose momentum um, and that we have a reauthorization in another year um, to sustain efforts on U.S. leadership to address hunger, poverty, and malnutrition. Thank you for coming.